welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. This is the episode solely available each week for Chit Chat Money Plus or CCM Plus subscribers. And today we're going to be talking Warner Music Group to finish up our audio theme. I should warn you, uh, we're doing themes now on a month-to-month basis. We're going to be putting out actually a schedule so stay tuned for that. Actually, might be out before you're listening to this. But either way, right around now, we're going to be well, planning our schedule more to hopefully for anyone that's subscribing to understand what you're going to get. And we're also going to thematically move them with our Arch Capital episodes. Ryan, you have let's to tease that. the themes. Okay. So the uh, for let me make sure I get it right. Um, for the month of September, we're going to be doing gaming. <clears throat> so we're each going to pick a. It depends how it works out, but we're each going to pick a few companies and then we're going to end with, and we, we've kind of tried to structure these a little bit around the Arch Capital episodes, which we're going to do at the start of every month. So oh, actually the end now, but yeah, or, or the end of every month now. So the, the, that first month, September is going to be gaming. We're going to end it with electronic arts, which we currently own. And then, um, October will be housing. We'll end it with Consorcio Ara, which we own in the fund. And then the November will be engineering software. Um, there's a couple of companies we were able to choose from there. That will end with Autodesk. And then the last one, December for 2022, we're going to end with uh, website slash e-commerce software. So th- those are your themes. And, and the company will present, we'll be talking about in December will be Wix. Well, I guess they'll probably be January, but um, that's kind of to lay it out we'll have a nice little graphic that we're working on uh throw it up on the twitter so you can kind of follow along with all the companies so you know what you're going to be getting for the remainder of the year that's enough of that right or is there anything else uh, as always if you subscribe through apple podcast please email us the right email to sign you up for the premium newsletter that goes along with ccm plus that does not have anything super different than the actual show except really has our show notes charts and all the research we use in written format instead of audio format. So it's a great supplement to the audio show that you're listening to right now. If you don't want it, that's fine. However, it is a part of the CCM Plus subscription, and we think it's a really great combination to have the written stuff along with the audio. Some of you that have subscribed on Apple Podcasts, just looking at the number of emails we have from Apple Podcasts versus the number of total subscribers through Apple Podcasts, we don't have all of you yet. That's fine. But again, email us. And the email is chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. That will be in the show notes as well. All right. Let's not delay any further. We're talking Warner Music Group, one of the largest labels in the world. However, that is a bit of a black box. So Ryan, why don't you introduce the company and explain what they actually do? Yeah. Warner Music Group is, uh, you kind of described it there, one of the largest music entertainment companies in the world. They are, uh, according to some sites, the second largest in revenue behind sony music entertainment although well universal is the largest though right well this website was wrong that website yeah universal if we're gonna once we get an industry and market share universal is the largest um but that's that kind of shows how much of a black box some of this stuff is where no one no one really knows they're all mysteries 
but uh, Warner, there's there's plenty of information. So um, it is ba- the basics of the business are that they own a bunch of different record labels. So uh, WMG, which uh, maybe just to abbreviate it, we're going to go with WMG for the episode. Uh, is that they're home to more than a hundred thousand artists and composers and more than a million compositions. So, uh, I guess maybe we'll go with Warner Warner houses, a bunch of iconic artists such as Ed Sheeran, Bruno Mars, Duo Lipa, uh, basically pick your favorite artist. There's a good chance that they're with Warner music. Um, I don't, I don't need to go on and on. I, I know they, they touted Lizzo a lot in their financial filings. That's like the new, I think that's their newest hit artist. So, yeah. Yeah, either way, uh, they, they've had plenty of famous artists uh, go through there and they have rights to a lot of those compositions, but they generate revenue in pretty much two ways. So there's recorded music revenue and then there's music publishing revenue. And this is, um, it's, it's a little complicated, but I'll try to describe it the best I can. So recorded music comprises more than 80% of Warner's overall revenue. And it refers to the actual sound recording component of a song. So this is, they also call this the master. Um and the way it works is or the way revenue collection works is that distribution or streaming platforms like Spotify or radio stations sign contracts with Warner for the use of their musical compositions. Then depending on particulars from the contract or depending on um, listen numbers, they ultimately get this royalty pool or uh, royalties uh up front it really depends on the contract but for the bulk let's go with the streaming platforms as an example there will be a royalty pool based on the plays uh of certain songs that they own rights to so about 80 percent of that revenue gets paid to the owner of the recorded music and the remainder gets paid to the publisher for the use of the composition so i'm going to talk about the publishing revenue here in a second but the way i would just think about it is the recorded music revenue refers to the actual sound recording. The music publishing revenue refers to the IP or the actual composition. So the lyrics and the actual publishing. Um, am I am I kind of blanking on anything there? Would you describe it any differently? No, it sounds fine to me. Yeah. Okay. And then Warner generates revenue from various channels, but the channels are pretty similar between recorded and publishing. And so 62% of their revenue comes from streaming. And 46%, or I should say about three quarters of that streaming revenue subscription, the remaining quarter is about roughly a quarter is ad supported. So those two comprise the streaming aspect. 19% still come from physical revenue. That includes CD sales, vinyl, uh, cassettes, and records. Vinyl has had 14 years of growth, if I saw it correctly. 14 straight years. Yeah, it's a nice little niche that has been growing recently, so... Uh, of the physical, that's the only one that's really keeping it alive. CDs are, you know, pretty much dead now. Uh, cassettes dead, but yeah, over time, this people will probably like, continue to trickle down. Although, you know, with antique stuff and collectible stuff like that, people kind of like the vinyl. And, have you ever uh, used vinyl? No, I, not really. My my sort of hobby. I'm not really. Uh, I don't care too much for music. So, well, I mean, I listen to it, but you know, I'm not a giant fan of very many people. So, yeah. All right. Not, well, not much of a hobby, but anyway, it, it is a hobby for people. Yeah, 19% comes from physical sales. And then 11% is performance rights. So broadcasters and public venues, stuff like that. Um, and then 6% is downloads and other digital. I believe this is probably referring to iTunes and anything that's basically digital, but non-streaming. 
And then 2% is other. This includes gaming, films, advertisements, anytime they use the the song recording in something that, they, that let's say a, a movie uses it in their background, they're going to end up uh, paying for that. And so then the, the other segment is that music publishing revenue, which I referred to earlier, that is more focused on the IP. It's the actual monetization of or it's the monetization of the actual musical composition, not the sound recording. And then in exchange for helping in the actual publishing process. So think like promotional activity, marketing, actually helping to create the, the song, the label shares or Warner music in this case shares the publishing revenue with the artist. So they are, if we're thinking what value do the labels provide today, you, if you're an artist, you can get um, help from some of the best genre-specific producers by being connected with a label. You can get um, help with branding, help with marketing, help with helping with PR, helping to get on the right distribution channels. Basically, you are growing your audience because the label is helping you do that. They really understand the business side. If you are a singer or an artist, because I know we actually have a few um, musically talented people that listen to the show. Um, and we're getting anything wrong, please feel free to uh, correct us. But I believe that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, it's kind of a just the promotional and the distribution side have changed over the years, but labels still provide value in that, um, even though the distribution channels are a little different. And then as far as history goes, um, well, there's a ton of different record labels within Warner Music Group. And the oldest one dates back to 1811. Um, which is probably the earliest company we've ever studied, the earliest origins. Good bet, good bet. Kind of hard to beat that, but that's Chappelle and Co. And then, um, but like I said, there's tons of different record labels, so they all have their own origins. But the actual formation of Warner Music Group didn't really come about until 1958. So uh, about a couple of years prior to 1958, one of the Warner Brothers or Warner Bros, which was a film studio, one of their actors produced a hit song, but Warner had no record label at the time. So the actor had to go to a subsidiary of Paramount Pictures, who was a competitor with uh, with Warner Bros, um, basically to get help publishing his music. And Warner didn't want to lose this business. This is kind of their lesson learned. They didn't want to lose business on talent that they'd already gone out and acquired. So they opened up Warner Bros Records in 1958. Five years later, they acquired Frank Sinatra's struggling uh, record label, Reprise Records. I'm not going to go through every single transaction because it, there's been a ton of them, but Warner's been not, not only have they acquired a ton of labels, but they have been bought by other companies and sold on several occasions. In the last 20 years, um, for reference, Warner Music Group was sold by its parent company, Time Warner, in 2004 to a group of private equity firms. It was then brought public a year later. Then in 2011, it was once again acquired, this time by Access Industries, for $3.3 billion. Fast forward 10 years, and WMG, or Warner Music Group, has gone public again. However, Access still owns a large chunk, which Brett's going to talk about here. So it's changed hands a lot today. It's a publicly traded company. Uh, access still owns and still controls the business predominantly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest, uh, record labels. They have a very expansive catalog of music that they own the rights to. Um, you want to talk industry and landscape? Yep. Let's get into it. Global recorded music industry. And this is excluding music publishing. So 
there's two different categories. I know it's confusing, but Ryan, I think, introduced it. So the global recorded music industry is estimated to be about $25.9 billion in 2021 and has really been growing at about a 15% to 20% rate with the rise of streaming music subscriptions and a lot of, um, the not backlash, but defeating piracy in a lot of markets. I know they've defeated piracy which is just, you know, illegally downloading music for free on the internet. They've defeated that in a lot of Western markets, mainly North America and Europe, but that is expanding globally. And that's along with streaming, um, along with the streaming music subscriptions and then advertising support of streaming as well as kind of give them a consistent tailwind the past, uh, say, five to 10 years. WMG, I'll probably call them WMG. They've been steadily rising this wave. Um, and if we look at the global music publishing industry, that's estimated to be around $6 billion. It's a bit smaller, but still sizable and should grow really along with streaming as they get a percentage of that revenue as well. Um, competitors, pretty easy to see this you know, landscape. It's not too difficult. You have Universal Music, which has about an estimated 32% market share. And this is according to uh, Warner Music Group's uh, 20, well, they have a weird fiscal year. Their fiscal year that ended in September 2021, their annual report. So we're in a bit of unfortunate timing here where they're about to report in two or three months now, their next annual report. So some of this stuff might be slightly dated, but the industry isn't too dynamic. So things, you know, things won't change that much. But Universal Music has an estimated 32% market share. Sony has 21% market share. And then Warner Music Group has an estimated 16% market share. So they are the smallest of the big three music labels, but still one of the big three with a big chunk of the, the overall market. And then if we look at artists that are not at a major label, basically just taking 100% minus the some of those three numbers, that is 32% market share. So a decent amount of people are not at one of the big three, but still 68% of the total um artists in the world or the total revenue for music recording. I'm getting that right. Yeah. For the music recording part, the largest part are at the big three labels. Now, if we look at another competitor, because they're competing with, you know, Universal Sony, they competed with them forever, forever, but a rising competitor is investment funds, buying up music catalogs. For example, um, I saw that Blackstone is getting into the business with a partnership with this company or investment fund called Hip. Genosis, it's H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S, strange name, but they're about, they're estimated to deploy around $1 billion in investments into music catalogs. We love, there was actually a recent story this week while we're recording this about the Pink Floyd catalog going for an estimated, say like $500 million, something like that. So that's a rising threat because a part of Warner Music's strategy is to invest in new, you know, artists, new catalogs, new music, and if the cost of these catalogs is going up, um, that's just something to watch out for. And I'm sure we're going to discuss that more later. And to, to, to kind of butt in here on the, I don't know if I did a great job breaking out the recorded music and publishing segment. The reason those two are often separated is that it isn't always the same party. So, um, the publisher, there might be someone else that gets credit for the lyrics and the writing of the composition, whereas the artist might be the singer. So this is kind of a way to credit both. Sometimes it's uh, it's the same party doing both, um, but that's why they break it out into those two. Yeah, and, it's and we don't context. need. Yeah, yeah. There's been all the legal stuff around publishing um, rates going higher for streaming. I don't think we need to get into those details. But that has benefited, I guess, the labels a bit, where they get a higher rate from 
the streaming companies. But yeah, there's a difference between a lot of the major artists, I think, as uh, listeners will know, don't write all of their music. Sometimes there's, you know, right, right. So it's, it's a team effort or something like that. Uh, but let's move to management and ownership. Interesting one here. I think the most important thing any investor needs to know from what I read through the proxy statement and just kind of reading about the company is that WMG is majority controlled by Access Industry Holdings. So Access Industries was started by Len Blavotnik. Blavotnik. Uh, he is a Ukrainian, I believe, uh, kind of from the ex-Soviet Union, came to the U.S. I believe in the 80s he got uh, citizenship. But he's a, it is a private U.S.-based investment group that has been running for decades. And Blavotnik was born in the Ukraine. He's estimated to be worth about $33.2 billion, so one of the richest people in the world. And he still sits on the WMG board and is essentially the one that controls this company. Now, if we look at the executive team, Stefan Cooper, age 75, is the current CEO. He's Might the be CEO. Stephen. Stephen or Stefan? Stephen? Uh, I'm guessing that's Stephen. PH would be Stephen. People spell Steven that way. How do you know what what's what? I guess there's no way to know unless you listen to it out of play. What's that? What, well, I mean, how do you spell Stefan then? I know I've seen people spell Stefan S T E S T E F A N. S T E T F O F A N. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, Stefan Cooper. I was calling Cooper. He's the current CEO. He's been the CEO since 2011, so he's been there since Access Industries took over. He has a ton of different experience across finance and managerial roles. He was actually a temporary CEO of Enron after the bankruptcy, so he came in to right the ship, although it was probably a ship that was doomed to fail anyways. One interesting thing that investors should watch out for is that he announced he will be resigning by the end of 2023, and they're looking for a new successor by then. And that leads to the next most important person at the company. That is Max Posada, who is age 48. He is the CEO of Recorder Music and has been in charge of that segment since 2017. Before this role, he was the CEO of Warner Music UK for four years. So what would that be, 2013? He's been in charge of some form of recorded music segment and has apparently had, quote, record-breaking success. That was in the proxy statement. So I believe this means they have, you know, they have a lot of top UK artists like Ed Sheeran at WMG um, that have done it quite well for the company. He is rumored, although not confirmed, to be the leading candidate to get Cooper's role, uh, but nothing has been announced. Uh, there's just some interesting succession stuff here that we might want to play into. All right, and then we'll move into compensation. Uh, nothing too big here. I mean, total director for the board of directors compensation was only 0.08% of gross profits are really fine there. No, no concerning stuff on, on paying their board too much money. And then executive compensation was about 1.23% of fiscal year 2021 gross profit. Again, not too big concern. Uh, and there wasn't any huge notable things about their compensation plan. No big red flags are really positives from my regard. I mean, they do a standard annual salary, annual bonuses, and long-term equity incentives to compensate employees. We've talked about the upsides and downsides of these standard strategies quite long before, or sorry, a lot of times before, uh, but they, you know, they, they really seem to have just standard stuff here. I mean, the annual bonuses and long-term equity incentives, they said they're generally discretionary. So there's no, say, target, I guess they have to hit or no things set in advance where the bonus is calculated if they hit some hurdle rate on revenue or, or their profitability metrics. They do have a strange, what they call free cash flow plan where you can get compensated based on a percentage of free cash flow generation, but it looks like one person was possibly using it. Again, not the preferred method. They were just giving out discretionary RSUs 
generally for their equity compensation. If we look at their shareholder uh, list, not it's pretty basic. You have Access Industries that own 73.3%. If We'll put out a good chart here for the newsletter in conjunction with this. They own a ton of, there's a two classes of stock here and they own all the B stock and they've been converting some to A, I think to sell off some of their stake. Uh, and they own 73.3% of total shares outstanding. So it'll be interesting to see if Access Industries, you know, they, they took this company public. They really made a strong investment buying this for only $3.3 billion. And as we can see, it's been quite a good investment for them. I don't know what their plan is because they have converted some class B to class A. Maybe they're going to sell some stuff off. But again, they own the majority. And if we're looking at voting power, because it's class B and it has 10 times voting power, they own 98% of the voting rights. So even if they continue to sell some stuff, they can still majority uh, own this business. If you look at other ones, they got some standard hedge funds and Vanguard owning here. Cooper owns actually, and that's the CEO, again, for reference, owns about 2.3% of the company. So pretty good skin in the game. However, a little bit of a low light seeing that he was still getting compensated in RSUs, especially because he already announced his retirement and owns a huge stake. So kind of a downside there that he would still take that, but not a huge red flag. And then Lasada actually owns 0.71% of the company. So decent skin in the game. He's been around the company for a long time and maybe he'll be the one to take over. Seems like he's kind of a lifer there. And I did like that he was only 48 years old. Um, so maybe he's still got a couple decades left. Yeah, everything looks pretty good in terms of management and compensation. Yeah, no no big red flags. I didn't think any huge positives, but really, really boilerplate stuff. I mean, there might be that risk of the, I don't think Bolvodnik, I mean, he's been in the U.S. citizen for a long time, but he might get associated with that, you know, ex-Soviet Union oligarch stuff. There could be stuff, complications with Ukraine that we're unaware of, but... I don't know, you know, they're self-sustaining business. So who knows what will happen with that. But it's just interesting that, you know, this Ukrainian oligarch kind of owns the, the majority of this company. Yeah, and it's hard to say how that would trickle down to the the actual business. Yeah, still, people are still going to be listening to music, uh, whatever happens with, with him. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, I'll talk earnings, and I, I kind of want to. I know we throw a lot of numbers at listeners during this segment, so just to kind of understand the goal when we talk earnings, I, I'm trying to give listeners context of the size of the business, and then also sort of a snapshot, snapshot of what's going on at the current moment. So for the last 12 months, they've generated just under six billion dollars in revenue, that's growing at about 15 percent from the 12 months before. They have 48 percent gross margins. It's 
tends to be pretty steady there. Most of their cost of revenue comes from royalty payments to artists. So uh, if you've ever looked at Spotify, uh, majority of their cost of revenue goes to labels. The majority of the labels cost of revenue goes to the artists. So um, it's kind of this just trickle down effect back to the artists um, and then different uh, stakeholders take a little piece of the pie along the way. And, and then apparently no one is happy with their situation, which I always think is quite funny. Yeah, no. And then uh, about $432 million in free cash flow over the last 12 months. From what I've seen, it looks like they're tend to stay right around or just under 10% free cash flow margins. Um, and that's, so that that's last 12 months figures. Most recent quarter, there was about $1.4 billion in total revenue. That was up 7% year over year. It was up 12% in constant currency, but they obviously do business globally um, and report in dollars. So um, a bit of a lapse there, constant cur- or currency, foreign exchange was a big headwind for them. And then the recorded music business was up 3% and the publishing revenues were up 30%. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the publishing was interesting. I think they had, you know, that revised rate uh, that a lot of the, yeah, there was that ruling and we don't need to go into the details of that, but just the rate they're getting from the streaming services is higher now on the publishing stuff. Okay. And then the cash flow, $128 million of free cash flow, about 9% free cash flow margin. They've had pretty lumpy cash generation. I, I think it's always been a little bit under their operating income that figured that they report. They use OIBDA. Um, operating income before depreciation and amortization as sort of a, a proxy for profitability. Yeah, uh, but they had, they had, the, the management did say at a conference that they're like, yeah, we should expect consistently to convert about 50 to 60% of that to free cash flow. And I was like, well, maybe it's not the best profitability right. metric that if you're only converting 50, 50 to 60% of it to actual cash. But sorry, yeah. continue. And then so about 16% OIBDA margin. Um, but like, like I said, f- focus on that free cash flow figure. And then in terms of just like providing some context for the quarter, digital revenue actually as a percentage of overall revenue declined for the first time in a while. And part of that, well, it was almost entirely driven by higher artists, services, and expanded rights revenue. So concerts started to come back in a big way. Um, artist services revenue was up 56%. That kind of offset or had an outsized impact on it. It grew as a percentage of overall revenue, but it's coming off a low comp because concerts were uh, kind of destroyed over the last two years. Um, and then artist services is a lower margin business. So it, it had a bit of an impact on that OIBDA margin for, or just consolidated margins for Warner Music Group. And then the other thing that's worth noting here, revenue was a little bit slow. Uh, revenue growth was a little bit slow because they are also impacted by the advertising slowdown that we've kind of seen over the last quarter. So the uh, with a, with an ad slowdown, the ad supported revenue from a lot of their streaming partners um, creates a smaller royalty pool, which means revenue collection for them is going to be slightly lower. Um, and then they also pushed a few big album releases to Q4. So some sometimes it's it's almost like game video game companies where uh, it can have to do with the timing of the release occasionally. Um, yeah, apparently and so, uh, their new well we're in Q4 and they said something about Cardi B's album doing well. That was the big pushover. So, I mean, either way, it's kind of just a timing thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's also kind of an interesting note is that you have the ability to kind of track, if you know who their artists are, you can kind of track what their revenue share could potentially be by by following how popular some of those songs are. Yeah, and when, I don't think I made this chart yet, but when we put out the newsletter, I'm going to make sure to go back because they have to state it in their annual reports. 
the market share of them, Universal and Sony, as uh, as a percentage of total recorded music. I believe it's been pretty stable over time. Um, I don't know. I think that's just a good number to look at because it, it, if it's been super stable, you can kind of maybe make a uh, prediction that it can be stable in the future as well. Right. And then balance sheet and liquidity, um, kind of an interesting note here. Access Industries, since taking over, they've really improved proved Warner's debt structure over the last decade. Now, part of that is the streaming industry has brought on a bit of stability. Um, so it's a little easier to uh, get, get better terms on your debt. But n- not only have they improved the credit rating for Warner Music Group and extended the maturities, but Warner Music Group's weighted average interest rate declined from 10.5% in 2011 to just over 3% today. Beautiful debt strategy. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, pretty impressive. And then the, uh, in terms of the actual debt today, there's about $3.8 billion in long-term debt. It's comprised of both senior notes and, and one senior term loan. And the earliest maturity is 2028. And the weighted average interest rate is 3.4%. Really long-term debt, stable cash flows, and low rates. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Now, probably the downside of where they're pouring that cash into, uh, but, you know, the debt side, but very strong. Yeah. And then in terms of the, I guess, assets and cash flows, uh, cash and equivalents was $345 million. So they, they do, they use that cash pretty, they, they don't store up a whole bunch of cash on the balance sheet. Um, they, they run the balance sheet pretty lean. And then over the last 12 months, they've generated just over a billion dollars in adjusted EBITDA. So their leverage ratio stands at just over three times. This is a pretty predictable business, especially now. I think we can. Um, during the piracy run, it was probably a little harder to predict, but, um, with, uh, just how dominant streaming is as a percentage of their revenue, it's fairly predictable. So, um, it, that allows them to, to kind of lever a bit, uh, and add some debt to the balance sheet, which they've done over the last 10 years. Yeah. And I should mention before we forget, they do pay out a dividend, uh, as part of their capital allocation strategy and is yielding approximately 2% as of this writing. So looking at, you know, when we talk valuation, um, they're not a big buyback company, but they do return capital to shareholders in the forms, uh, the form of dividends. Not really good history on whether they're going to increase that over time. We'll see what their uh, strategy continues to be because they just went public kind of under, you know, the, now they're in the public markets, but we'll see. All right, let's move to valuation pretty quick here. As again, you'll be able to check the dynamic valuation. We don't do complicated valuation work. So this isn't a huge part of every show. I know we're kind of just looking at basics on the trailing 12 month. And actually when I'm doing these numbers on some fiscal year 2021, I would, you know, maybe would like to do go into like the trailing 12 month but the business is so predictable that I think there's honestly other metrics that you would want to follow for tracking kind of the success of this company and looking at their enterprise value to blank. It's not the best metric, but we're going to do it anyways. Uh, but it'll be quick. So the market cap, just to give you a size reference, is about $14.8 billion. Add on to that debt, it's $18.3 billion for their enterprise value. And if you look at the two metrics I think are interesting to follow, is just enterprise value to OEBITDA, and that is enterprise value divided by their trailing OEBITDA, and that is 20 right now. So very you know close to the market average. I don't know if that's high or low, but if we look at their conversion to free cash flow, it isn't that high. We'll talk about that later, the downsides of sort of their business model where they're not getting the cash up front um, compared to the streaming services and possibly the artists, but their enterprise value to free cash flow is much higher at 38, but a bit lumpy. Uh, if we look at on the charts here, and I don't even know if this is the best 
way to look at it. Let's look at their conversion to free cash flow. It was, if we look at fiscal year 2018 to 2021, the conversion to free cash flow from OEBITDA was 69%, 10%, 888%, which was just weird because OEBITDA was almost close to zero, and then 53%. So they got it to about 50% to 60% conversion. So that's kind of what I, I'll be modeling out when I do their, you know, both the bull and the bear case, because there's not much you would think that would change to affect that. If if it's if it's due to the streaming companies holding on to yeah, that's part of it, yeah. those accounts payable essentially. It's their receipt. Yeah, it's it's that, Warner Music's receivables. Yeah. That OI OIBIDA or whatever you want to call it is actually probably a decent a better yes, proxy than I would have thought. It's yeah, it's, it's actually it's decent. That's why I like to look at both from when I was looking at kind of, you know, how's this business actually making money? I think looking at both OEBITDA and free cash, but looking at both of those is probably the best the, the best two metrics. So, I mean, uh, depreciation and amortization, you know, there's going to be some CapEx here, which is basically acquiring new music catalogs, reinvesting in new artists, stuff like that. But the depreciation and amortization can be, you know, fairly high. And uh, yeah, OEBITDA is nice. All right, let's move to anecdotal evidence. Uh, not a consumer-facing company, so a tough one here, but anything. Not true. What? What do you got here? I've listened to their songs. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Ed Sheeran's not, you know, everyone loves Ed Sheeran. Sure. (laughs) It's consumer facing. No, no. The results of how many people listen to their songs. Sure. The artists are consumer facing. The artists are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's their, it's their music. Yeah. But I mean, they're not, they're not, if Warner Music is not interacting with, you know. Right. All right. Um, Yeah. No. it's not really the anecdotal evidence people would want either, but um, the way I kind of understand their role in the music landscape, it feels labels generally feel irreplaceable. Not only do they provide value on the actual business side, and I'm sure that's extremely valuable to artists. There's sort of this reputational thing where like it's validating if you sign with a label, yeah, you know, like or it's signing with a big agent, something like that. Yeah. So like if you're an artist, it's like, I just signed with the big label. It kind of creates this incentive to sign with them um, instead of going individual, which is probably a harder, it might give you a bigger take home rate, but um, it, one, the pie might be smaller. You might not get, reach as far as you could. Uh, with the help of the labels, but also uh, it, it you kind of get some social clout when yeah. you when you sign with them. So I, I see, I imagine a lot of young up and coming artists will sign solely for that reason. Yeah, and the new artists is yeah. It seems like the labels have a lock on that. The complications of getting yourself distributed to all the different digital platforms, getting any sort of music recouped from they talk about you know social platforms and then even places like Peloton or exercise places where. If you're on your own, that's quite difficult to do. The labels can help you with that. They have the infrastructure to do that. And and the creative I, teams to build or help make better songs. Exactly. And it seems like, again, anecdotally, they've managed to keep their market share fairly well. They actually bragged about gaining market share, although it was only a couple, not too many basis points. It was like 50 basis points or something like that. So I wouldn't really toot my horn too much. But again, they've retained their market share, which is great. The only thing I worry anecdotally is, and this is different than new artists, is the cat is out of the bag with the value of music catalogs. Yeah. Um, 
that feels like a commoditized market now. I just, you see Blackstone, you see all these different funds going in there. There's only a limited amount of places. I mean, yeah, these, you know, catalogs can be quite valuable. People listen to old music and if it's on streaming, it's sort of an annuity, but. Especially if, especially on the older catalogs, like, I guess you kind of just said that, but the streams on older catalogs have to be pretty stable. I'd imagine. Oh yeah. I mean, growing, growing because we grow at the stream. Yeah. They're uh, quite, I mean, they're, they're, it's pretty, yeah. Unless you're Neil Young and you take your, well, he, uh, yeah, I guess you can't take, uh, the, the owner of the content yeah. makes the decision, but yeah. All right. Let's move to future growth opportunities. Ryan looks like you have the standard one here, but it is kind of a boring, you know, it, it is what it is. It's going to be the most important one. Yeah, I mean, growth isn't really up to Warner Music. I mean, they can obviously acquire new talent, but growth, they're just sort of a byproduct of the overall industry growing, I think, and basically just getting their content all, onto all the possible channels and seeing how the industry evolves is is basically their growth strategy. And so I'm picking streaming as, uh, as sort of my growth avenue. Um, there's not really a whole lot they have to do here, but it's obviously been a boost to the business over the last decade. And there's ways I think that, so I've kind of contemplated this idea of, all right, distribution's easier than it's ever been. Um, getting popular or having a viral song is kind of easier than it's ever been with the onset of like TikTok and stuff like that. And you can get into different playlists and you can kind of get popular on social media, that kind of thing. But it's also probably more competitive than it's ever been. And so being able to leverage um, expertise in the industry when it's getting hyper competitive. Yourself, yeah, getting yourself on streaming playlists or whatever, you know. Yeah. You can't, it's a lot harder to do that on your own. Warner Music has that relationship with Spotify, Apple, YouTube, you know, and they'll take advantage. Yeah. And even, all right, uh, I, I saw that songs are getting shorter because they're trying to get more. Uh, virality via these short form video clips. And then there's incentive because you get paid on a per stream basis on streaming. So there's kind of incentive. You don't need that eight minute song anymore. You would rather have three, you know, three minute songs. Right. And so not only giving some expertise in sort of the creative process to the artist to kind of say like, this is what's popular right now. This is how we can benefit the most financially, but then also saying, we know we have the relationships with the radios or we have, we know how to, get you onto the right playlist. We know how to do uh, promotional activity on Spotify uh, with those marquee promotions and basically knowing the proper promotional strategy. I think it, being, being the most digitally inclined and, and uh, kind of knowing that world and knowing the streaming world and knowing how to take advantage of it is going to be a big asset for them in uh, helping talent and growing, growing Attract, the listens of their catalog. Yeah, and attracting new artists because that is that is very important. If the catalog is kind of competitive for new, you know, I mean, they'll have like, there's a difference between okay, they have their existing catalog, which is not anything we've really talked about because that's just you know, recurring, it's, it's, very it's, simple. It, I mean, it's a hundred percent mode. It's a lock. It's monopoly on that catalog for however many years the IP is. But I think it's almost a hundred years they have a lock on that. And if the, the old catalogs that are kind of up for sale are highly competitive, the way to grow is to acquire new and upcoming artists. And that could be the easiest way. If they have that sort of marketing push, people will be convinced to sign with them. 
Now I'll move to mine and it's within digital, but it's different. It's called the, what they call emerging segment. They haven't outlined this in every quarterly report. So you kind of have to go through what they say recently, but they did say something in June of this year, which is nice to see. So this is revenue and that doesn't come from streaming services. And this includes some places like Peloton, TikTok, and Meta. They actually just signed a new deal with Meta that apparently will boost this segment. So the numbers I say here will apparently get even better. And Meta, I mean, is Facebook. So Instagram, whatever. Instagram Reels probably is. Yeah, stuff like that. You know, Facebook Live, whatever, or whatever, Facebook Watch. I can't remember what they call that stuff. But at a June investor conference, an executive mentioned that this segment is at a run rate revenue of, of uh, only $100 million when they went public two years ago, but is it now at $345 million? I think if this rapid trajectory continues and music royalties around the world start to get paid out across all these consumer internet platforms, not just dedicated music services, this you know it could turn into a meaningful driver for the digital segment. If we look at their fiscal 2021 revenue, it was $5.3 billion. So if this gets to a billion dollars, I mean, it can be pretty, pretty sizable for them. Um, it's not small right now. And there, there's only, there's only upside because basically a lot of these places are technically pirating the music yeah. and water music can kind of go in and say, look, let's, you're kind of a non-compliant customer of us. Let's sign a deal with you. It might not be as lucrative as a streaming deal, but you got to give us some money. And yeah, you know, the large platforms will be willing to. All right. Highlights and lowlights, Ryan, what do you like about this business? It's pretty simple. Uh, they can pretty much skate wherever the puck goes. They don't even need to skate. No. Yeah. <laughs> they can grow without doing a whole lot. Uh, yeah. in, well, in some regards, in some regards, they have to do a lot to help with their artists, but yeah, but uh, let's say you just took management out of the equation and you just bought the whole content library, the whole catalog that would grow. Yeah, the listen listens would grow. Yeah, without yeah, like you have to you know yeah, you have to work with the artists that are coming out with new stuff, but the old stuff, I mean, it's just it's an annuity. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I mean, really, it's kind of industry highlights here. It, music is becoming increasingly accessible to people around the world. Um, and just like so many songs at their fingertips, uh, more and more people are adopting smartphones. It just seems to get easier and easier. Um, there's also that reputational advantage that I talked about of signing with a label. I, I don't see a world where the labels are not a crucial part of the, the music ecosystem in five, 10 years, um, especially just given the fact that they own all, uh, all of the all of their catalogs and, and very valuable music. Um, low lights for me though, I don't see what sort of a competitive advantage they have in acquiring or identifying new artists compared to other labels. It feels to me, and this is probably where maybe my naivete comes into play because I don't, I'm, I'm not an artist, but what value do they provide over universal? I think it would be similar. Honestly, I tend to think I would like, like if I was an artist, I feel like I would want to go to Universal, to be honest, because they're the largest. Like you got, if you're a hip hop artist, you see Drake or whoever at Universal, you're like, okay, if I want to be like him, I go there. It's sort of. Yeah, but I feel like there's diminishing effects after a while. I mean, yeah, I don't there's Ed Sheeran at Yeah, Warner. I don't think it's a huge deal. I think honestly, the big worry there is 
you like the over the long term Warner Music's unit economics. Will the artists be able to get better deals as a lot of the stuff we see in Kanye West kind of go crazy with uh, from time to time about the artist stuff? And it sounds like he's kind of talking. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> you know, like Kanye West, but the uh, they're, they're, the deals could skew favorably towards the artists as it, or if they be, the labels become more of a commodity because they can yeah. play everyone back and forth, sort of like, I honestly think it's sort of similar to a sports agent where they don't get that much of the revenue because they you know, provide a good amount of value, but it's almost a commodity service that they're kind of just taking care of. I, yeah. And then, I mean, it's it kind of, my other low light, I guess I'll say is maybe there's with distribution being easier be, with being able to advertise directly with Spotify, there's the two-sided marketplace. Um, I know a lot of people go through the labels to do that. I wonder if there's a world where the value that the labels provide just kind of starts to shrink over time, it's not quite as valuable as it used to be. Um, so I just, I don't know if like the increasingly digital nature is helpful or hurtful for them in the future. And so I guess that's kind of a risk for me, but they've, they've weathered it so far and yeah. it's, and it's interesting their th- business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to think whether they have been okay. So streaming has been growing since say like as a meaningful part of it doesn't say like 2012, 2013 or something like that. From then until now, have they been basically getting free advertising? And now a lot of the companies like say Spotify is especially talked about this, but all the other streaming services are probably gonna want to, you know, not freely promote people anymore. Where I think Spotify highlights that their consumers our users discover like 16 billion artists. I believe it, that's the number 16 billion new artists every month. And a lot of that they've basically done for free because they want to improve their service. But that is a ton of value getting provided to the labels and the artists that they're essentially doing for free. Yeah. And actually they're paying the majority of the revenue they earn off of that to the labels. I just worry that the union economics and maybe our Spotify bull, bull uh, bias is coming in here, but I worry that there could be more pay to play coming down the line. Yeah. Uh, there's not that many low lights across the board. Like the, the big low light for me is that like, it's really predictable, which makes me think that it's pretty easy to value, which means maybe the returns aren't going to be that great for investors. That is a good point. That is a good point. It's probably uh, the biggest low light. Yeah. No differentiated viewpoint. Although too durable that everyone knows it yeah i don't know that's tough but you kind of wrap your brain in a pretzel when you think like that but it could be true here what about you yeah i mean industry durability is a huge positive for me i mean i've had money that humans are going to be listening to music regularly in 2030 2040 probably 100 years from now um other highlights the intellectual property advantage gives them a really strong moat you know with the existing catalog yeah you know there's been a lot of talk about artists trying to retain their masters and that could still be a big threat but i kind of look at say taylor swift who uh, had a huge problem with that we don't need to go into that whole story i think it's kind of complicated i don't know the exact details but she re-signed with universal and she maybe is the biggest artist in the world i don't know exactly but either way like top five or something like that globally if she's signing with universal or she's signing with a label 
um, it feels like they got to provide value to people that are small in that as well. They can provide value to an artist of all size. Yeah. Um, either way, the intellectual property stuff is just a huge advantage because it's you're not a no one can compete. Uh, and then second, the streaming market still looks like it's in its very early, early innings. Small penetration rates around the globe. Digital revenue has compounded at 16% since 2018 through the end of fiscal year 2021. I don't think it's like overestimating to say that same exact growth rate or somewhere in between 15% to 20% will continue for the next three to five years, which is great. I mean, they can just ride that way. Now, lowlights that you haven't talked about, Ryan, um, poor cash conversion on earnings. So they have streaming services that have that accounts receivable stuff that we talked about. Uh, cash advantage advances to artists. So they're paying cash to, to artists upfront to sign with them, right? But they're recouping that in streaming, mainly streaming now, almost as an annuity over a long period of time, but they're not, you know, they're not getting that back cash back immediately. Yeah, you know, there could be positive, uh, basically thinking of it like a loan, like lifetime value of that, but still it's bad working capital dynamics or however you want to describe that. And second, there is going to need to be a reinvestment into new music catalogs and artists, meaning a lot of the earnings, the OEBITDA, don't actually show up consistently as cash in the balance sheet because they have to consistently reinvest, uh, however that means. I think it's just it gives them a tougher path with the business model to consistently returning cash to shareholders. Nothing they can really do about that. It's just a lie for the business in general. Um, second one, acquisitions seem unwarranted and strange. They've acquired quite a few different companies. They acquired a company called Uproxx. It's a website about music, I think. Maybe they do other stuff. I would rather see the company focus on what it does best and then return cash to shareholders. Every time I looked at their cash flow statement, it was acquisitions of you know business combinations or whatever that line is. It was consistently there. And Yeah, I'm looking at Uproxx like right now. What the hell's the point of this? I know it's it's in the I mean, industry. Why, no, why I mean, why do they need to own it? Yeah, it's in the music industry. Um, it's all the culture of now. I know it's so they can own, so they can own the media around their own brands. Yeah, I guess I, I would love them to just that. That just concerns me a bit because media companies have a history of buying assets. I don't. There's just poor, you know, capital destruction. From acquisitions that we talked about and then lastly let's see we talked about you know promotional stuff that could be a low light and then uncertainty around deals so i think that's i think that's it let's move the bull case brian what do you think can go right here they continue to grow their catalog and the overall industry growth continues I, that sounds simple but that's all you really need <laughs> i mean isn't that kind of exactly what's going to happen it feels like yeah you need conversion to cash flow though yeah as long as they don't do stupid things with their capital yeah, I mean, Uprox. They're still generating a fair amount of cash. Yeah, I, the, the conversion does concern me. I mean, we talked about it a lot, but yeah, I mean, top line growth feels very, very predictable. Um, I'll hit mine. I mean, you know, they got their infrastructure advantage, they got their reputation advantage, and they already have IP advantage. I think they'll be able to retain market share and their margin structure. So I think that's the two things they retain market share and their margin structure, basically, with the continued the same relationship with the streaming services and the same relationship with the artists uh, financially. The good, the good thing about, um, the, I think you mentioned that the two-sided marketplace is by definition margin destructive for the labels. But if they choose to take that compression on margins, they're exp expanding the potential nominal profits by 
uh, creating a bigger audience. So if margins decrease, you could see an inflection in growth, uh, like, like nominally. So it feels kind of like a, uh, even though it, uh, what I'm trying to say is like, you could lose one and grow the other and yeah. you'll still be all right. And you can also see a world where streaming services start raising prices, which Warner Music executives, obviously they're talking their book, discuss a lot when I was reading their conference calls and investor conferences. They talk about how the streaming services have, they're like, we tell them they have a ton of room to raise prices, but they won't yet. And I think a lot of that is because they're big tech and they're trying to subsidize a lot of stuff. But still, if the streaming companies could say in a scenario, raise prices, but have... um basically a deal with the labels where they pay out uh, their revenue share is just slightly lower for the labels as they raise prices, just because for whatever reason, that's part of the leverage they have on that deal. That would mean Warner Music Group's margins might go down, especially if they had to pay more for promotional stuff, but it could still be gross profit, creative. I mean, if we look at all that stuff, basically at current prices, current valuation, if margins, if the industry continues to grow, and margins are fairly consistent, you probably get good returns here. But let's move to the bull case. Yeah. What do you think go wrong? The the bear case. But yeah. sir, excuse me, bear case, yeah. Well, I should also say the I think the bull case I, I think it's sort of a narrow range of outcomes. I, I don't think the bull case is that great. Um I, I think you can I, get good returns, but I don't you, think there's kind of be valuation like, coming into I mean, yeah, valuation is a part of it. And then just like, I don't know, top line growth isn't going to be insane. There, I, I could Unless definitely see a path to like double digit pr- free cash flow growth per, per, on a percentage basis um, for the next five to 10 years, just literally riding the tail or riding the wave of streaming. And that th- those returns will be fine. But I don't know. Do you, do you see this being like you could? Depends what like a term- multi-bagger? Yeah, it depends what your, depends what your terminal multiple is yeah, on an OEBITDA or free cash flow. Because, All right. yeah. Bear case for me. Um, it's just that the values, the value that the labels provide decreases over time. And while they might be able to still kind of, uh, I mean, they'll still own their content, so the bear case is limited, but if the value they provide over time shrinks, I have to imagine that eventually that's going to show up in their margins. Yeah. And at least mine too, is just my bear case was margin deterioration. I think Ryan just described why that would happen. They have worse deals with streaming services, worse deals with artists, and then the commodification of the catalog business. And then combine that with poor cash conversion, you, you know, it's hard to see where you get returns if that happens. Um, I really think it does count to come down to consistent margins because industry growth feels pretty easy to, it's going to happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it just depends on who is keeping, I think it's just a big question, who is keeping uh, like their share of the pie, the artists, the consumer facing companies, and the labels, those three. How does that shift? All right. More or less interested, Ryan. <sighs> more maybe not as an investment I, I don't think i think you're paying for a lot here and it, it, you're maybe getting mediocre returns at today's price like it's a premium valuation any way you look at it um and 
I, I was kind of thinking through this in my mind. Is 20 times earnings a premium multiple? It depends what company. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, with There's just pack. something about it that's like too easy. Yeah. It feels. Well, I think at 20 times multiple with that cash conversion, it's premium for sure. Yeah. Let's say it's like 30 times. Let's meet meet the multiple halfway. Thirty times, say, stand, uh, multiple year free cash flow, kind of, you know, right? Yeah, it doesn't entice me too much, but it's to- it's like I think audio is in my wheelhouse. I I, I love that we've done these episodes because we did serious last week, and it's starting to give me a better grasp on the overall landscape. It's worth tracking just to see. Like if in five years nothing's changed, maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe it's just 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 go along the content owners. Yeah, if they retain that market share and they retain those margins, I think yeah, I'm more interested. I would like to see what happens with the new CEO because I think that's important because Cooper's yeah. been there for over a decade, and I just think that's really important to to lead the charge there. They have been the management concerns me a bit just with their acquisitions. They are hyping up a bunch of Web three stuff, uh, which concerns me. But besides that, I mean, very good business. Say one last time, the big concern is the cash conversion and the relationships with some of their constituents. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting business for sure. If you're riding a tailwind and you're, you have the IP advantage, there's got to be something attractive. It, it, it's attractive. It just depends on what price. It's like a lot of gaming companies over the last decade. Yeah, exactly. It could be could be a similar analogy there. Like yeah. Call of Duty... And it takes less uh, capital intensity to build the games, but well, like to build the games or for games? to build the games than to build a song. Sure, yeah, yeah. But you know the brands that were dominant seem to have stayed pretty dominant. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong on some, but like you know, if you're older, you listen to rock music. You're gonna listen to rock music for the next thirty years. Yeah, that's a streaming annuity. All right, and even a little more staying power because maybe, you know that, you're that, you're willing yeah. to play old songs as opposed to as opposed to like playing old games. That's exactly. So the people still listen to uh, what you call it, classical. That yeah. Beethoven catalog, you know? I wonder how that's doing for that. Uh, all right. Stock for next week. This will tease out the new schedule we're yeah. putting out. So I'm sure we might link it in the show notes. Although, eh, maybe not. But either yeah, way, if you follow us on social, on the newsletter or whatever, go check out the schedule. Um but Ryan, we are kicking off the video game month of September with Ubisoft. Ubisoft. Yep. That's a good one. I think we have all game. Oh, no, we're doing Xbox as a special one. Uh, but besides that, I think it'll be all publishers or developers, which I guess is really the entire industry. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for this episode. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening and subscribing as CCM Plus members. We'll see you next time.